you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 54 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. And myself, Mark Tottenham Barrister and editor of Decisis Law Reports. Mark, good to see you as always. And last week, you will recall, we had a really enjoyable interview with solicitor Valerie Peart, who gave us a great insight into the family firm Peart's, which is mm. the doyen of town agents. Yeah, uh, she every solicitor's firm in Ireland and every legal person will know about Peart's. Absolutely, carrying the weight of generations on her shoulders and uh, and really interesting. And generations it is because I think the firm goes back to the late 19th century. Absolutely. No, great interview and great response to that. Well, today, Mark, we're talking about barristers and in particular, barristers starting out the devils. Mm. So non-legal people listening to this, when you start out as a barrister, you devil for your first year with an established barrister. And joining us in studio, we're going to have two colleagues, Sarah Reid and Aaron Grealish, who have just published the third edition of The Devil's Handbook. Oh, if that was available when I was starting out, Mark. Yeah, certainly. They address a lot of the mistakes that a lot of us make oh, very I tell early you, on. I could have been on the right path. Mm. I was going to say a lot earlier, but just even on the right path would be fine, could, to tell could, you the could truth. Could be quite useful now, indeed. <laughs> right. Okay, but first, before we get into that, we're going to have three cases from Decisis. So the first one tonight is we're going to, and we're going to start with two, actually, in a row. These are two Supreme Court cases concerning appeals from the Solicitor's Disciplinary Tribunal. In the first, a solicitor took over another firm. He was then subject to disciplinary proceedings in 1999 concerning the failure of the other firm to file accounts. How is the appeal going before the courts? Well, as you say, it's it's over 20 years and this appeal is still there. I'm so, thinking of Prince here. Exactly. Yeah. We're, so what happened, as you said, he took over another firm and then found that the owner of the previous firm had failed to file certain accounts, but because he had taken it over, he became responsible for them. Um, and was disciplined. And so he was found guilty of misconduct in 1999 and by all accounts decided that that was a perverse uh, decision but didn't appeal it. Then, moving on a few years, he was struck off, not solely for that reason as far as I can tell, but certainly it was cited when he was struck off the role of solicitors. And he then brought other litigation against the Law Society. In the course of the other litigation, it turned out that the owner of the previous firm had written a letter to the Law Society accepting responsibility for not having filed the accounts. In the other litigation, a former registrar of the Law Society said he shouldn't have been disciplined for failing to file the accounts. And so he then applied for an extension of time to appeal the 1999 ruling. That was refused in the Court of Appeal and it came before the Supreme Court. And they accepted that he had a very good case for turning over this 1999 ruling. Okay. However, because he didn't appeal it in the original time, he w- they wouldn't extend time for him to appeal it. Wow. So this goes back way back to the last millennium. Wow. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And you have another one for me from, from the Solicitor's Disciplinary Tribunal. And this was a Supreme Court decision and uh, it was to do with a finding that there was no prima facie case made against a firm of solicitors. Again, they were in disciplinary bother. The appeal was out of time. You love these out of time appeals, Mark. Uh, And the High Court determined that it did not have the power to extend time. Oh my God. (laughs) 
<laughs> but it, it should be said these two decisions were handed down at the same time. So it's, this, it, this isn't a, entirely a coincidence. The great the, issue the, of our time, yeah, extending time. Okay. But the, yes. cu- well, the curious thing here, and it, this is important for, for, for our solicitor listeners, what happened here was the appeal was by the person who'd made the complaint. So finding a misconduct in the solicitor's disciplinary tribunal is like a criminal finding. I mean, the, the consequences are quite serious. But the appeal here was by the person who had made the complaint because the solicitor's disciplinary tribunal simply said there's nothing to see here. And the appeal was brought out of time. And because the legislation concerning appeals does not specifically allow the High Court to extend time, the High Court said, if it's out of time, it's out of our hands. We can't right. extend time. The Supreme Court said, no, that they do have the power that, that the High Court of its nature, because it has full original jurisdiction, where it can extend time. So it okay. was remitted. Okay, all right. And I should say that that's the case of, of Kerwin versus O'Leary. And it's a decision of Mr. Justice Murray in the Supreme Court. Okay, and finally tonight, in the third case, a deceased had named his daughter's as executors of his will. However, the deceased son applied to the court to have an independent person appointed as administrator of the estate. Uh, So nothing like an old family row. We love a family row on this show. Exactly, yeah. And I mean... As very often happens in these cases, there's a dispute among family members and the deceased had, had, as you said, appointed his daughters as the executors of the will. The son clearly, you know, had had his reasons for not wanting his, the sisters to um, to be executrices, as, the, as I think the official word is. But he wasn't able to show that there was any misconduct or any uh, any mishandling of the, the estate. And the mo- most he could say was there was a delay in, in the administration. And the, the courts very much fall in favour of the person chosen by the deceased. So unless you can actually show misconduct or a conflict of interest or something along those lines, they won't remove an executor. And we hope that family can put their difficulties behind them and move on after the the court proceedings. Okay, Mark, thank you for that. And that is the case, I should say, of Inray Casey, deceased, uh, and it's a High Court decision of Ms Justice Stack. Okay, back shortly with colleagues Sarah Reid and Aaron Grealish. Silence. In the fifth court. I'm delighted to be joined in the studio today by Sarah Reid and Aaron Grealish, who are colleagues of mine and Peter's indeed at the Law Library. Sarah Reid was called to the bar in 2008 and Aaron is a more recent uh, recruit, having uh, been called to the bar in 2022. But they're here today because they have just published the third edition of a book called The Devil's Handbook, which sounds much more exciting maybe to the non-lawyer than it does to the lawyer. Sarah published the first edition of this in 2010, along with colleague Sonia Donnelly. Sonia has now left the bar and so Aaron has stepped into her shoes. And I suppose also as a more recent devil has more of an insight into what things are like now compared with when the first edition was published. Is that a fair summary, Absolutely. Sarah? I'm an old hack at this stage, so I needed new blood. <laughs> not, not, not as old as myself. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you published the first edition in 2010. What was it that made you think that such a publication was necessary? Well, first off, I suppose I didn't realise I was writing a book. I was, throughout my first and second year, scribbling down notes in what I came to call a trauma journal, jokingly, but a, a collection of mistakes, mishaps, lessons hard learnt. And as had Sonia, and at the end of the year, we realised several of our friends all had trauma journals. And it, it wasn't necessarily a sense that this could be a book or it could be monetized. It was just a thing we had. And as colleagues who might have taken some time out and then came to the bar, 
we said we could give this to them almost as a we're a year we're, we're senior barristers now in our second year you could have these notes and our scribblings and Sonia went or how about we publish it so mm. it just kind of came out of what were just initial musings realising this actually is good content and could be a, a, a gift or again Sonia clever <laughs> went, mm. or it could be an income stream so that's where it started and it it, it has grown from there into, yeah, and that's where the handbook element of it as a as a guide. It wasn't written as such, but I think has become a, a guide. And did you have to approach many publishers with the idea? Or did, no. was it snapped up? Uh, well, hardly snapped up. <laughs> I wish there was such a thing as legal textbooks and being snapped up, there was no advance. Uh, we had to, to, to sell sell the idea to them, really. went to Roundhall. And, as and the, it's Roundhall. Yes, yeah, so yeah. it was with Roundhall originally and we, we did have to pitch it to them. But uh, I think the idea made sense and they were willing to give it a go because it is a small text. It's not mm. a huge amount. So they, they took a bit of a punt on it. We were quite eager and said, look, it's already done. So they could see a, an advanced copy, if you like, or a sense of what it would be. But uh, no, there, there wasn't a bidding war, if, what, if that's what you're asking. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. And just going back to the idea of a trauma journal, can you give uh, listeners some idea of, of, of something that you found particularly traumatic about being a first Oh, it's a too soon, Mark. It's too soon to talk about it still, no, 15 it's, years it's, later. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I suppose it was actually, and I jokingly called it a trauma journal, but it was actually just, I suppose, embarrassments, things that felt really obvious once you'd made the mistake, but weren't obvious in the moment. And that was part of the frustration because I think you finish in the King's Inns and you are at that point a barrister. You're done, out into the wild and then, or the law library. And you walk through the doors of the law library and you are a barrister. And that sort of sense of I have arrived and you do need to, to feel that and that needs to be your, your, you know, you put on that cloak going into court and that ego helps you do the job that we do. Certainly in the early years, the belief that, that you are a barrister, sorry, you are a barrister, but the belief that you are all the things a barrister is and should be. And then if you do make quite a simple mistake because somebody hadn't told you or it's not immediately obvious, that kind of mistake really struck me to my core as to, oh God, I'm supposed to know this or everyone knows this and I'm now the idiot. You know, Am I a good barrister? Am I a real barrister? So it was all of that sort of quite mental component. So how, are there things that were traumatic? I mean, I struck out my own motion once because I hadn't asked which party I was for. Wait till second call. Oh, they're not here, judge. Put it to second call. I was here. Oh, these silly things. I say, and then having to go back into the judge and say, oh, in actual fact, a miscommunication arose, meaning I didn't ask my master who I was for. You know, so so struck out my own motion. I am... Um, Oh, there are many silly things like that. And and so, yeah, it, it was the embarrassment that I just felt this doesn't need to happen. And if we can remove that, you can get back to being an actual barrister rather than the, the, the learning on the job bit. And uh, Aaron, you are, have just come out of this traumatic experience, presumably having the benefit of the first and second edition of the Devil's Handbook. There was nothing traumatic about your first year at the bar. Oh, no, came fully formed, fully <laughs> yeah. prepared. Yeah. Uh, no, obviously, I, I had a formative experience in my first year at the bar. I happened to pick up the second edition, actually, when I was during my undergrad, before I even got to the inns or anything. Mm. But I kind of instantly opened it and didn't really understand the things in it because I hadn't gone to the inns yet or anything. Mm. And then I slowly started to to reference the book again and again. And then I got down to the bar and I'd be talking to my colleagues and I'd mention something like, oh, well, you shouldn't leave one barrister in the court just alone with the judge. You should stay there until the judge rises. Mm. And my 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 friends, my colleagues at my in my year would be asking, where did you hear that? Where did you know that? And I didn't realize until we started writing the third edition that it was from the book. Sure. So okay. there was a lot of things subconsciously that I didn't realize that I had gotten from the book. And it, it was just a, it was great to be able to add elements to that as well. Mm. And and w- would would there have been other people in the inns who who would have had copies 
copies of it? I mean, was it was it a widely discussed tome, or were you ahead of the the, the curve? Well, I kind of I, I I might have brought mine into the inns a few times when we were doing certain topics, but I kind of kept mine to myself. To a certain, I'm not sure why, but then was when the cheat sheet, yeah, it, yeah, it was my it was my cheat sheet essentially, <laughs> and I think I lent it to one or two people. But then when when we started doing the third edition, I was surprised because so many people that I didn't realize were aware of the book hmm. then had mentioned that they had bought it or they'd read it or they they were aware of it. So I didn't really realize until we released the third edition the effect that it had had on people. Mm. Okay. And so when it came to putting this third edition together, did, did you work together from the outset in the, in the new edition? Very much right. so. I was quite aware, I think you'd mentioned at the start there, I'm now 15 years in practice, so I am not fresh meat for the devil uh, mindset or or market or outlook. And so I needed somebody who, who did still have that sense of what what is it now? And this, is, of course, is after COVID. A lot mm. of things have changed even since second edition, which is 2014. So the bar has changed. The, the way we work has changed. Even the way, and we'll probably talk about this later, the way the bar as a profession has moved into a business. It always was a business, but I think mm. the, the sense of it, like the, the prevalence of LinkedIn, of, 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 of is there a TikTok barrister? I hope not. <laughs> but the sense that it's a different thing now than it was in 2008. So I was self-aware enough to realise there's other bits here that I can't see because I'm at a different stage in my practice. And uh, I think I might reference this in the book as well. It had kind of fallen off my radar. I kind of felt like, what can I actually add to it? So it, it may have died a death and the second edition, to the extent that it still applied, might have been relevant. And I was happy to leave it there. And it just, it, through um, interacting with Aaron in the library and there was, kind of, in, there was a motion where we kind of came to contact with each other and it, it just through that, he, he's just very enthusiastic and, and very encouraging. And I was like, you know what? Kind of lit a bit of a fire under me to go, maybe this is worth a revival. So mm. from the early days, I was I was cognizant to take the book as it was and take out the things that had aged and hadn't aged well, uh, by which I mean things have moved on. And if you say, this is what the list looks like today, the lists change. And, and we've seen after COVID. So I did, I wanted to future-proof it. So my task was more to take out bits and and, and future-proof it. And Aaron was to add in more bits. Aaron, I don't know if you want to jump in with the bits that you kind of wanted to add or you did end up adding to the book. Yeah, I think one thing from me listening to my colleagues, and I think this is an issue that um, kind of comes up. It's the people when we start at the bar, our masters, and they're very learned, they're, they know a lot of law. But the issue is because of their advanced stage in their career, they don't know what it's like to do the small things. And it's the small things that the new barristers are going to be doing. And that's what I heard from myself and my colleagues, what we needed the most. So the, the part of the book that, that we added that I'm most proud of is this section where we set out all of the terms. I know you love yeah. explaining terms on this show. So mm. setting out every single term you'd be The jargon of the business. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Mm. So set out all of those. So when you're asked to do it, you know what you're being told that to do. You know the effect of it. And then actually going so far, far as saying, this is how you say the full phrase in court yeah. using all of these elements. Yeah. Because that's uh, for a first year devil, the first few weeks, the first months, that's what they'll be doing. They'll be, they'll be going into court and they'll be looking to get a very simple thing. But if they say it wrong, the wrong mm -hmm. thing will happen or the court will tell you that doesn't exist and yeah. you'll get that embarrassing <laughs> feeling that yeah. we've all yeah. had at some point yeah. in our career. Yeah. Or yeah. a solicitor will ask you, and this is the thing for me, I, I, I think it's important to, and this is not to, to, to slag off or take a swipe at anybody, but frequently as a young, eager junior barrister, you want to get the results your solicitor has asked you for. But you may be asked to, to can you just go in and get that order? 
And it's important to note that's not actually an order the court will give. Mm. Or maybe that sister hasn't been in that list for a while and they don't haven't come across the new unless orders. So the judge, and I saw it just even this week, the judge said, oh, do you mean X, Y, and Z? And the like the blood draining from the devil's face going, if you could let that stand while they go and ring their list and go, is this what you mean? So that, yeah, I think that yeah. that, that, that list of, and I, I was a bit concerned it might be almost, what would you call it, like insulting or, or because it's quite basic, costs in the cause means, yeah. costs reserved means. I was like, is this too simplistic and a little bit insulting? They are at, at, at very least one, if not two law degrees. And, and these are, mm. you know, they're grown men and women. Is this insulting? But I think the feedback has been, that's been the, the first, the most thumbed page of the book is the, the, the references. Yeah, I mean, certainly a lot of that stuff wasn't taught in those terms when I was in the no. King's Inns. Mm. I don't know if that's changed no, in the meantime. It wasn't so, for me in 2008 yeah, either. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I had a I had a great experience at the King's Inns. I really enjoyed it, but they can only cover so much. Mm. And I think that's something everyone comes into practice yeah. with. They they don't know these these small terms, yeah. um, unfortunately. Yeah. But I'm happy that we've provided something that can help sure. guide people. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that certainly struck me over the last few years is, you know, when, when I started devilling, everybody was in the main law library. Now, obviously, it was before the CCJ. Mm. But, you know, that was it was like a college library that everybody mm. was there. You You bumped into people. And for even pre-COVID, I would find myself thinking, where are the devils? Because mm. the people mm. around the main floor of the library, largely were the personal injuries bar mm. who were there 20 years ago. <coughs> and yeah. and I don't know if it's that, you know, so many more people are working in the, the rooms in the distillery buildings, so many more people are now in the, the criminal courts of justice. But this sort of experience of the whole profession more or less kind of mingling in the one place certainly doesn't seem to be there anymore. I mean, can I ask you, Aaron, I mean, where are the devils? I mean, (laughs) are are a lot of people doing an awful lot of their work at home, attending motions online and not mingling with the rest of the profession? Yeah, it it seems so. And you know yourself, Mark, I particularly picked a very prominent spot amongst all those older personal injury barristers because I thought it would be very beneficial. But it seems a lot of people are in the the research libraries and Mm. they're working from their master's offices. And I think a huge element of it is is being part of the library, absorbing almost through osmosis, overhearing Mm. conversations, even like overhearing how cases are settled. Mm. And I think a huge amount of it is in sitting there, being in the law law library. But Mm. there's a flip side element of it now. Obviously, things have changed post-COVID. Like every, every year of Devils will have a WhatsApp group. And there'll be a good few messages per day. What's the name of X judge's registrar? What, Mm. what, how do you do a motion in X? So I think there is a kind of lean, but the the issue is it's limited to your one year. The the idea about the law library is you could have someone who's been down 20, 30 years beside you. And you could also have someone who's been down four or five who might relate to you more. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But but you, do you still find that, that, people are helpful. You know, if you do turn to somebody and say, you know, what am I supposed to do about this? That somebody will still tell you, you know, assist you. Incredibly Mm. helpful. Mm. My devil family, my masters and even my my devil siblings, so people who have deviled for my, Mm. my master before me are, have been incredibly helpful. And I've, I've, I got into the habit early on of, even if I don't know a barrister beside me, if I'm standing in court, Mm. I just go, introduce myself and ask them, is what I'm going to do correct? Or yeah. does what's this judge position in relation to it? And I think it's an element of losing your shame at the yeah. start. Mm. Acknowledge sure. that you've you've just started working here mm. and you'll actually make friends that way. Everyone will be happy to help you. And I think that's the, yeah. the main strength of the bar and being a barrister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
One of the themes in the book appears quite early on and throughout is the difficulty of women at the bar. Do you feel that that position has improved in the time since you've been at the bar or are things as difficult for women as they ever were? A quick and easy answer. I think it's has always been hard and it is still hard. Mm. And I really would like to see more just structures or even conversations around how to take some of those obstacles out of it. And I, I do say, and I say it is a theme in the book and it's funny, writing the third edition now, so I'm 15 years in practice, I've had, only 14, I hadn't had my kids at that stage in the, even the second edition. I am now looking at it in, through different eyes and just on so many levels, there are, so I was 2008. Now, that is a point in time when <laughs> the financial markets, literally we qualified in July and I think the next month the government was like, that's it, we're in recession, IMF are coming in. So it wasn't a great time uh, mm. looking back in any event to start any new job. But still, it, the, the number, the attrition rate for women in my year, and that's not even that much, that is significant. So it, it does frustrate me a lot and, and what we can do about that. And But it, I mean, it does strike me that the attrition rate that you talk about, I mean, mm. a lot of people, uh, you know, famously, you know, stick it out for three, four, five years yeah. and eventually go, this isn't working for me. Yeah. And it seems to me that that isn't uh, exclusive to women at all. That Correct. That, and, mm. you know, and a lot of the people who do well, you know, broadly speaking, are either the the super bright ones who mm. had scholarships all the way through and are picked out as sort of bright from an early stage, or the people who have, should we say, good connections or are very good at sort of working the mm. system. It seems to me that that at the at the sort of the devil level, the, the obstacles are probably similar enough for men and women. But then you have mm. the other issue that you're talking about for you know once you have a family that you know the burden still very much falls. In yeah. most families, on the on the mothers, and it's very difficult to see how a self employed profession like ours mm. can properly adapt for that, yeah. or can we? I agree that up to a certain point, it's it's very difficult for everybody, and that is probably the four or five fifth year mark. We go, what am I doing? Is this a practice? Is this a mm. career? Is it viable? So that's for everybody, I think. But the people who stay after that, I think a new kind of bracket opens up for women who stay, who get through that bit, but then reach maybe seven or eight years and say, actually. I'd like a house. Actually, I'd like a family. Actually, the next stage, or maybe other things happen that they want to just, they need to make provision for. And it's that piece where I think that's the attrition for women. So they've made it, and this is why I was so frustrated, they've made it through the tough bit, but then go, oh, how does this work? How do I take maternity leave? How do I cater for school holidays? How do I do that? And so a, a significant conversation, I think, needs to be not had around. Not just school holidays, school pickups. School pickups, <laughs> yeah, the timing of it. And now, it's not only for the mothers. That, 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 but that's what I mean. I think the parent aspect. How do you parent at the bar? And for Alan Brady, a colleague, has been brilliant on this mm. around starting conversations and sort of saying to the bar council, what can we do here? We need to do better for people whose children are young. And in fairness, he, he was very helpful kind of with suggestions from the book. But he said, I want to, so, oh, oh, well, I've named and shamed him mm. now, but uh, removed his cloak of anonymity. But he had comments in the tips from colleagues about parenting and about the logistics and all the rest. And he said, but I, I kind of want it to be clear, this isn't a woman. I know it's anonymous, mm. but this isn't just a woman's issue. It's a parent issue. And he hit the nail on the head. It's a parent issue. So you just get to a stage in your life where you're like, how is this going to work? But the things like fee recovery. So the Bar Council has done stuff around fee recovery, which is a big thing. So if you can make it work, so somebody in your corner to recover mm. fees that aren't being paid, if you can make it work through those things, which again, is not just women or men, but they're the things that are maybe more likely to get you to be able mm. to stay through it. But because if you leave at, at that point, that's when we're not seeing the women seniors mm. at the same levels because they're not there. That's well, why we're not seeing women judges. We are, sorry, we are seeing more women just being appointed, but the pool of, of selection being seniors 
there isn't the same. Mm. They're just not there to be seniors. Yeah, I mean, I remember Marie Baker when mm. she was on the uh, commercial court saying that, you know, in every other division of the high court, you see a reasonable number of women barristers. And then the commercial court, you see far fewer. Yeah. And the explanation seemed to be that the commercial court more or less expects you to go off and work 24 hours a day mm. getting your, your, your papers ready. And mm. that is just less of an option for people who have to go home and, yeah. and, and look after a family. And yeah. that is still in yeah. our society predominantly yeah. the mothers. And it's frustrating because um, the bar actually is a wonderful... It has flexibility or is this, mm. there's the potential for flexibility with the long vacations when the kids are off school, with the later start date for 10 o'clock, the court, you know, th there's the potential for flexibility to make it work. But there are those additional obstacles which are just creating mm. the reality, sure. lacking the reality of yeah. it. And then an another theme in the book, you, you use this phrase quite a lot, finding your tribe. Maybe Aaron, you can, what, what do you understand by that? Well, I, I think it, it's in Sarah's part that she mentions it, the idea of finding your tribe. I suppose there's lots of members at the bar and eventually you're going to find people that support you and you relate to more within that. And there's nothing wrong with that, having that support system. I'm obviously new to the bar, but for me, it's been my devil family. Mm -hmm. They've been my tribe, certainly, in that they've, they've helped me a lot. Um, so I think that's an important element of it. So I suppose as opposed to trying to appeal to everyone, trying to get along, focus on who who you relate to, who's there for you when you need them. And that's my understanding of finding your so, tribe. So you're not talking about like a particular specialist bar area or anything like that. It's the people who you turn to, to for assistance and to mm. in turn you try to assist. The way I, yeah. I feel is it's a more of a human level, mm. finding out mm. who you can trust and who you mm. feel like you will help out any time and... Mm. I suppose there's no there's no issue with that. I know yeah. we don't have chambers in Ireland, mm. but I think one of the reasons that we we don't some people will argue that we do need them, some people will argue we don't need them, but we have those relationships, the yeah. freedom of to have relationships with other barristers. Yeah. And you've uh, having spent your first year in Dublin, you mm -hmm. then went down to Galway mm -hmm. and you're now in your second devilling year in Galway mm -hmm. on circuit and um well I suppose it, I should preface this by saying when I started on the Southeastern Circuit, I was one of effectively three devils starting in that oh year. Goodness. And I think there's now, I don't know, 20 a year or something like that yeah. starting. And uh, how many are starting in Galway this year? I am the sole devil in Stop. Galway this year. Really? Yeah. Uh, for the whole Western Circuit or just for Galway? Uh, there's there's two, uh, two colleagues have started in uh, Mayo, so the other county in the Western Circuit. But they're more senior than I am, okay. believe. I'm the I'm the sole barrister now. So you're the you baby are of the Western Bar. And and the effect of that means essentially every Western Circuit dinner or Galway Circuit dinner or Galway you're High Court dinner, I'm the junior. So I have to organize it <laughs> until someone else comes along. And right. it's not guaranteed next Start year. Start planning this book, okay. Aaron. Get I, people in the door. I'm in the course of organizing mm. my second dinner, and we're right. two months in already. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so and is that unusual? So I'm curious. I think that's really interesting, yeah. and and I, I I worry about the future of the bar for various reasons. I know I think we might touch on this later. Are there too many? But if you're one, and and I wonder, mm. I would have thought the the way fees are or um, rent is in Dublin, people would be moving back and mm. willing to go and circuit if they had that connection yeah. there. Well, one, obviously, I'll mad. be enough for a few years for Galway. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, from from my impression so far has been it's it's one or maybe two a year in Galway. So, and so you're finding your tribe in the city of the tribes. In the city of the <laughs> tribes, yeah. And it's it's amazing, like having grown up in Galway and lived my whole mm. life in Galway. Now I'm suddenly seeing it from another perspective mm. and meeting people I would have passed on the street every day. But yeah. now I have this 
unseen connection to them by both both of us being members for the bar. And there is a, a very strong sense of collegiality mm. in Galway. Yep. Like, like even when I was up in Dublin in my first year deviling, I get calls uh, from random Galway practitioners who I hadn't met yet. And they just heard, they just knew I was a Galway man mm. up in Dublin and was like, can you cover this for me? So mm. there's a huge amount of that in Galway. Yeah. I must say, when I started on circuit, I, I found it easier to understand how a judge managed a list because it was all in the same court. And remember in Dublin running around and there'd be some court where they'd go straight into the list, some where they'd spend half an hour on consents first, some where they'd call over the list first. And it was sort of, you know, it was a calmer experience. I mean, have you sort of, have you benefited from just seeing sort of one judge running one list for a few days? Yeah, or even especially like, I think knowing the judges better, like in Galway, there there are, there's one core judge and one judge who visits. Um, so knowing them better, knowing how they operate and your colleagues being able to advise on that better. But I think another element of it is going from court to court is so much easier mm-hmm. in like the Galway courthouse. Like sure. you have no worries if you're upstairs in the county registrar and you have to do something in the court downstairs. It's mm-hmm. a, a two second walk mm-hmm. and all of your colleagues will be there. So um that's another relaxing element of it. Even today, I was, I was in one list and I was really wondering how I was going to get everything done in the other list I had stuff yeah. in as well. It is a stress. Mm. Didn't you do a map recently? It was brilliant. I, I have a copy of it. Oh, like, I'll, I'll give it to you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, because, but that's, it's exactly yeah. that point where yeah, yeah. you are thinking, and even still, I had something in court 25 and I was like, 20, oh, sorry, no, it was 26. And I was like, 24 and 25, I know them. And then I was like, it's 26 there somewhere. So, mm-hmm. just, you know, it d- doesn't matter how long you mm-hmm. are. It's such a little, like, it was like the Marauders map thing yeah. and then the, like Harry yeah, Potter. Yeah. So but, that map but there. But yeah, the, 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 the numbering of the courts in Dublin is almost designed to make yeah. life yeah. difficult. Some really and, annoyed and, civil and servant now, now, now laugh. Now that you've kindly mentioned it, Decisis <laughs> does publish a map of yeah, all of the, uh, of all of the, the, the courts, which uh, we, we could probably have uh, negotiated the rights in the, yeah. ne- the next edition. Of the Devil's Handbook. We certainly looked into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're half thinking mm. because this was the mm. sense of how to make this just yeah. the small little bits where you're going to, you won't be focused on what are my arguments. If you're actually focused on, I've, I've timed it as 30 seconds, <laughs> time trials between the Master's yeah. Court and the County Regis <laughs> Court. And you just don't. And would sure. you recommend, do you think then, uh, sorry, Mark, no, 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 you can take over Do you answer. think circuit. <laughs> Because I'm just, I'm actually fascinated by how and and I, friends I've I've always known and I thought circuit was its own its own little tribe as you said. Mm. Do you think that then circuit is something that I thought circuit is a different it's a different job it's a different profession I know it's part of the profession I thought circuit genuinely feels like a very different job. Do you think it's a much more enjoyable experience having seen the Dublin bit except to devil in Dublin? Mm. Have you have you seen that and seen Galway or? Uh, I think I really liked the atmosphere in in both. I really liked the Dublin atmosphere of the hustle and bustle of the law mm. library. And then I, I like the element of Galway as well. And I'm, I'm, I don't think I'll be criticised for saying this. Like in courts, like in, in the county registrar's court in Galway, it's much more casual. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that when you see the the judge or the county registrar on a very regular basis. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you could do the same thing in Dublin if if this is the first time a judge, to their knowledge, has seen you and you're... But I think one of the elements of... of and I've, I'm still up in Dublin a lot and I'm still in Galway a lot. Obviously, I've moved back there. But I think one of the elements of just being in Galway to me was I, I step outside the courthouse and I'm at home in the city. I think that mm-hmm. was a major element of moving back home to Galway to me. Mm-hmm. Something else then that you cover in the book is the bar as a business. And uh, is that something that you feel ne- is not properly addressed or has not traditionally been properly addressed in, in barrister training? 
Oh, definitely. And again, I'm speaking, I suppose, in a, in a vacuum context of I qualified in 2008, so to come through the ins in 2007. I didn't feel like I appreciated it was business. In fact, it was at a CPG this year, Mark, sitting there and Judge Highland was talking and she said she... Uh, she because uh, that was earlier before the the long vacation. We wrote this over the long vacation, and but it actually the reason the chapter emerged and with that title, the bar is a business, came from her talk, and because it struck me sitting there, and she said, you know, I I don't think maybe there's a fully sense that you finish the ins, and but that's college, and, and you're not in college, and this is now your your business, and I was sitting there, and actually dawned on me, it's like. I don't think I had actually made that break. I don't think I had made that break. In my head, it was sort of a, because you're studying and it's research and I went into the bar, but even the law library, I, th- I think so- somewhere in my side. So- yeah, I back- mean, for the first three or four years, it feels like you are still in yeah. college and if you make any money, it's a kind of, yeah, a, bonus. You're, you're almost surprised. <laughs> yeah, well, my husband said to me once, he was like, so you love what you do? I was like, yeah. And he's like, and, and you, you, you willingly do it late into the evening. I was like, yeah. And his weekends, like, yeah. And he's like, but you don't really get paid. I was like, no. He's like, I think you've a hobby. I don't think you have a job there. I think you have a hobby. And it's that sense of you you don't expect to get paid. So so psychologically, I was just in this headspace of it's an extension of college. Whereas she was saying, no, it's a business. And I, look, I have an accountant. I have been, a, I am operating a business. But I don't think I just fully joined the dots until she said it, that it is a business and it needs to be a business. And she was talking about, and I just think it's a fantastic, and I think it's, a, it's something all practitioners need to, to really think about. If we're a business, like any business, you'd audit and say, what's working, what's not? Yeah. And that's also down to like redundancies. What do I need to cut from this to make me run more efficiently, my business run more efficiently? And it's self-awareness, which we're maybe not great at because I'm brilliant at everything because you need to tell yourself, you need to tell your clients, your solicitors, I'm brilliant at this. But the reality being, well, do you know what? And she, again, I think she's a, she was a very uh, incredible practitioner, very diligent, very good brilliant judge as well a very kind of very, she's running that list like she's very just she's she's very good very competent but she said she hated settlements she loved the law she loved the research she loved arguing but settlements which was the sort of like horse trading ah what about this because that just wasn't who she was so she mm. actually found them quite stressful going into it because it was the dynamics it was the relationship the personalities and she goes that's that's not what law is to me she was saying so she she said looking back she wished she would have maybe looked into ways she could have worked on settlement and this whole negotiation courses mm-hmm. now. So that sense of like recognising where is your business at its weak, weakest and yeah. what could I do? So that's the business. But I said, sitting in the talk going, this is really, really good. And again, mm-hmm. self, it's difficult to sit and look at yourself and say, I could be better at this or better at that when we always have to tell ourselves, I'm the best, you know. Mm-hmm. so it, it, it's well, a, and, and particularly because we're all working as self-employed individuals exactly. and it's not like you're in a team where you kind of go, oh, well, it's a settlement. Now you deal with that bit because yeah. I'm better at the court stuff. This is it. Um, and that's maybe where partnerships yeah. are, mm. the, the, there could be some benefit to that. And that's why the tribe, they yeah. will tell you they're not competition at mm. that point in time. They might be tomorrow when you're in court. Sure. But you have people who aren't your competition in that moment and can tell you, I th- I do it this way. I think you're very good mm. at this. Maybe so lean into that bit of it rather than the other. That That's the kind of tribe bit of see who can support you because we have to be our own champions. And that's hard because mm. you, you do sometimes go, oh, well, am I am I correct? Am I not? See, have I a blind spot here? So, yeah. Yeah, being a business is recognizing what's working, what's not, what could work better, mm. and and yeah, I don't feel like I really appreciated it. I didn't understand it. Maybe your I don't your generation might be yeah. might be a bit better. Like the LinkedIn stuff, just the, these small mm. tools that are available. I think for me, I came in with a different approach because we actually I don't I forget at which point in the ends, but they sat us down and they kind of said to us very sternly, "This isn't college. 
this isn't university, you're not at school. And they actually told us not to refer to the King's Inns in those terms to anyone. And they said, this is a professional practice course. And then from there in my head, I was like, I'm a professional. This is my business. So then when I went to the bar, it actually kind of irked me a little bit when people wouldn't realize, especially when you're talking to your friends and family. I'm like, no, no, because people would be like, oh, and do you, what, what more exams do you have? And I'd be like, no, I'm finished. I'm a yeah. qualified barrister. I can, yeah. I'm qualified from the get-go to take cases. So that was my mindset when I yeah. got in yeah. and how I wanted to act. So I think it was, for me, it was very important that to set up. That is new, though. I think the older thing of your surname or your connections meant you started in second gear. And if you didn't have the surname or the connections, mm-hmm. you had to find a way to, to put yourself in that position. Yeah. So maybe show yourself in other ways to be competent mm-hmm. and bright. But it was, yeah, it was a self-fulfilling, mm-hmm. yeah. I need to be this and then the work yeah. will come. And that yeah. was definitely not mm-hmm. the, the approach, or the business mm-hmm. bit you're describing. Yeah. I'm delighted yeah. to see it because it is a professional course. And, and of course, the other side, the, the important yeah. side of the business bit being you need to get your fee quotations out you yes. need to get yeah. your yeah. Your, in, your invoices your fee notes mm. out yeah. and uh, and you need and to stay on them and, follow and you them need up. to chase them and yeah. and and get mm. get paid because yeah. if if you don't then you you it, it <laughs> yeah. it's just as you say a hobby yeah, yeah. or yeah. even down mm. to the what used to be the fee notes was very mm. much What's that worth? Oh yeah, it's about this. And you'd kind of, mm. it's almost like a, a one line. Mm. Whereas now, if you're to recover fees, mm. they have to be itemised. Even like how many, this idea of solicitor's units. It's like, what's a unit? We just mm. have a fee. So yeah. I think the idea of, and the, the business bit of it, the fee, and it's it's transparent, it's good, and it's as it should be. Clients shouldn't be able to see what it is, not just back of an envelope. Yeah. Ah yeah. yeah, that's about 250. Those mm. days are gone. Um, but I wasn't ever trained in it. So I think newer years, they're, yeah. they're yeah. Yeah. but it applies but, to older colleagues who have to now do fee notes who are then going what (laughs) cannot do the back of the envelope anymore yeah I'm not sure if it's even something with everyone so I I thought it was very important in the book to say that you're you're now at the bar you're now a barrister you are a self-employed person Mm. you are in charge of your own business and the product itself is you so you need to come down with this effect of I'm open for business I'm ready to accept work and I think one thing Mm. for me that I found that I was advised to do is is get headed paper and yep. set yourself up like you've been here for 10, 15 years. Yep. And especially like a lot of people, if people see you in court and you're good in court, that's great. But mm. a lot of people don't see you when you're in court. And to get a good way to spread word about you is mm. when you send something back to someone on paper to look like someone who's competent, who's got what they know, what they're doing, they've got it together and yep. and they're ready, essentially. Yeah. yeah. On that note, uh, we have reached the end of our time. So we have the final question that I, I know you know, Aaron. Uh, we always ask every uh, every one of our guests, do either of you have a book or a film that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Uh, Sarah, we'll start with you. Oh, well, this is... See, I'm going to, to embarrass myself now. It's not necessarily a book or a film, but there is a seminal show, which I actually found on YouTube, but I'm going to watch again this Christmas. Um, one of the reasons I became a lawyer, we have no connections in law in our family. I just, but I do recall very strongly as a young child coming home from school, I was minded by a lady who we had to rush home because she needed to watch Matlock. And so I spent every afternoon, I watched Matlock and I'd forgotten about it until in The Simpsons one time, they were the, the nursing home, they were like, Matlock. And I started laughing. No one knew what it was. I was like, Matlock. So if you haven't, for your listeners, you haven't watched it, go on YouTube, watch on YouTube. Matlock. Great. He's That's a, a great do you know who you know Matlock is, don't you? I don't oh, my, you see, do you know who it is, Aaron? <laughs> no, no Guys, idea. this Matlock was a Stetson <clears throat> cowboy lawyer in was he Alabama he wore a white Stetson he was kind of murder she wrote but he was a lawyer so he investigated he prosecuted 
And let's just say that I, coming to the bar with those expectations of what law looks like, I, I do own a Stetson, but I don't wear it in court. So I would say Matlock as a TV. Time. There's always time. <laughs> and Aaron? Uh, for me, for a show, I, I watched a few of the, like, the suits and the better called Saul, Saul's of it, and I just didn't find them relatable anyway, except for one show, which is Rumpole of the Bailey. Oh, and I have to say, <laughs> that I, I think I really, I think... What, one thing about it was like, I think like three episodes into the first season, he passes Pack a brief like midway because there was an ethical issue. And mm. it just, it was great to see something that's actually kind of semi-realistic. Yeah, yeah. And then per books, I think a lot of the best ones have already been mentioned on your on mm. your show. But for Devils Who Want to Get Good at Advocacy, another good book, similar name to this one, which is difficult, is uh, The Devil's Advocate by sure. Ian Morley. That's a great one. Brilliant. Okay, well, thank you both very much. The fifth court will adjourn until next week. And that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guests, colleagues Sarah Reid and Aaron Grealish for coming in and talking to us about their publication, The Devil's Handbook. Mark, that was one you handled alone. I'm afraid I got stuck in traffic. Yeah, it was a very enjoyable discussion. We we, we covered quite a wide range of topics, really. Oh, yeah. I'm really so. disappointed to miss that. I thought it was brilliant. I was outside the window now listening in and I thought it was really, really good. So our thanks to those. And obviously, anybody who's starting out in the legal profession, get this and learn the tricks. They work. They really do work. Okay, so before we go, can I say a huge thank you to our producer, Cunalo Moroin, and to Lee Brennan of the Dublin South Podcast Studios for recording this show. So for me, Peter Leonard. And myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.